In space, there are games of legend. Giants and behemoths of the past. They have gone dark and cold, their signal faint to us. All players were once forced to play alone. But these games are not forgotten, they remain in our memory. And now we shall go back and make them live once more. This is Retrolave. Welcome to Retrolay, the journey back in time through computer gaming's finest space sims. Each week we gather together a group of gaming veterans to roll back the years and relive the glory in search of what made these games special. This week's feature is iWar by Infogram. iWar, known as Independence War after the North American release, is a space combat simulator developed by Particle Systems in the UK. The game was first published in 1997 by Infograms. You take on the role of an unnamed captain of the ship Dreadnoughts. At any time, you can command one of the four workstations, navigation for space flight, weapons for controlling the ship's particle beam cannons and missiles during combat, engineering from where you can control damage repair, and finally, the command center, where you receive various missions and updates. The game takes place in the 23rd century. You are a captain in the Earth Commonwealth Navy. The primary opponents were rebellious insurgents called the Indies, a group distinguished by their elaborately and colorfully painted ships. The campaign consists of 40 linear missions, with new mission trees being unlocked depending on the outcome of key missions. The game had three different potential endings. Okay, joining us for this episode, we have Colin Ford. Hi, Phoenix to Five from the forums. Simon Winnard. Hello, I'm Simon Winnard, Let's Device 69 on the forums. And James Vigor. Hello, one Vigor from the forums. Rory Scarlett. Hello, I'm Rory Scarlett. Grant Wolcott. Hi, and I'm Seikoko. And finally, Ben Moss Woodward. Hey there, it's Ben here, and I'm Edelweiss from the forums. Okay, so before we embark on the topic of Eye Wars, last episode we played Tacky on the Fringe and left behind Grant Walcott to cover our retreat and be our vanguard. Now, for those listeners that missed the last show, the Vanguard section is a new section to the Retro Lave that we introduced in order to explore a game's longevity. We are aware on the show that we can only invest around about two or three hours on an evening to these retro games, and sometimes it just feels like we haven't really done them justice. On a few occasions, we've commented that the pacing of these older games is much, much slower than their modern-day counterparts, requiring the player to invest a little bit more time in order to uncover the plot and different styles of gameplay. So each week, we choose one member of the team to stay behind and continue playing the game, and then report back to us on what revelations were uncovered with the extra playtime. So I should first of all mention that due to a few scheduling conflicts, a few acts of God and generally all sorts of real life stuff getting in the way, we haven't actually done a retro live session for quite some time. So we unfortunately left Grant stranded playing Tacky on the Fringe for the past three weeks rather than the one week he signed up for. So sorry about that, Grant. But tell us, what were we missing? Three weeks! (laughs) Three weeks! Bruce Campbell only takes it so far. I was going to say, do you still love Bruce Campbell as much as you did last week? Oh, hell yeah. It's one of these games that the more you play, the less you want to. Oh, really? Yeah, I mean, as much as the story was quite interesting, you begin to get to the point where the missions become so tricky, you end up just thinking, ah, bugger off and die. But there's a couple of nice missions. There's a, a particularly nice mission where you are sent in to basically patrol and 
carry out a blockade on a medical emergency, making sure that none of the, the ships leave the station. For some reason, I didn't quite pick up on the fact until after I'd launched that they wanted me to disable any runaways. But I only had missiles. I didn't have any beam weapons capable of disabling the ships, so sadly I did blow them up. It turns out anyway it didn't matter because it was all a big setup anyway, and that's the key point in the game, is when you go from having that nice big ship with all the hard points to being found guilty of mass murder and then forced to the fringe, kicked out of the central space in a crappy wee ship that barely moves. It's a horrible point in the game. So although storyline was there, it was quite interesting and the way it played was quite fun, it began to get very repetitive very quickly. So in terms of the grind then, I mean, what were you grinding for? Did you have to do like four missions before you could upgrade a weapon or get some shields or...? Well, I mean, I think I'd managed to put in a good 16 hours gameplay and I just found that, okay, I mean, 16 hours gameplay for me could be just one mission, just trying just try to get past <laughs> the damn thing. But I just found that, you know, the your upgrade options, they were seemingly, I don't know, I couldn't quite work out whether or not it was a station you had to be at and then you would get particular upgrades. But it seemed to be that your money would go quicker than you could spend it because there just wasn't anything there. So then you would get to the next stage and you'd be able to upgrade this bit and you'd upgrade that bit and then eventually you'd find yourself doing missions and you're just making money but nothing to spend on. Now you had mentioned last week that there was, uh, the last show, that there was no sort of trading aspect in, in it. Yeah. But there was a there was a personal belongings, but I didn't get far enough to actually figure out how to use the damn thing. <laughs> So you could act, so there was a what a rudimentary trading system within the game. There was something I just couldn't find it, um, and I went looking for it because I noticed there was this personal belongings part, and I thought, oh, that looks interesting. I wonder what that's about, but I couldn't find anything. And none of the missions um, that I got through there, there was a, a point when you have to pick sides, um, whether you want to be part of the sort of one of the big corporations or if you want to go out with the the border. I think they're called. Yeah, no, it's the border that were the fringites. You have to pick whether you're going to go down the gal span and or the border, and that then sets your sort of mission briefs. And I chose the border because I like the underdogs, uh, and I figured there was less chance of me getting battered. But and, and the missions were quite good at creating the sense of all these corporations were smiling at each other across a table while stabbing each other under it, because there was a lot of setups and the uh, gal span created you know, uh, a situation where they sabotage jump gate that stops the borer from being able to get through. So they then have to send you on missions to collect parts to then take out, then protect the team while they repair the gate so that they can then continue to sneak past the gal span. Okay, well, I mean, what did you rate it in the last episode? I think I'd rated it about a seven. And has that moved, gone up it- or gone down maybe? It might have been the obligation to play it for three weeks that just kind of took the joy out of it, but it went down to a six. I just found that the the missions didn't adapt as frequently as I'd like. I'd like to see that you do one mission, then maybe you got six or seven missions to pick from, but it seemed to be you would have four, and eventually you would just run out of missions in that section. You'd have to then move to the next one. So it just kind of lost that feeling of any sort of sandboxiness. Yeah, interesting. It's the first game that we've had that's actually lost marks when people have actually played it a little bit more. So that's interesting. Okay, so thanks very much again, Grant. I appreciate it. it was a little bit more of an extended stay than we were anticipating for that one. But thanks for sticking out with it. 
this week's going to be quite an interesting one because I know we've got quite a few holidays and stuff going on. So whoever forms the vanguard for this episode might struggle to play it for the time that they need to. But we'll see about that. OK, so this week in iWars. Now, iWars is a game that I definitely haven't played in the past. Uh, Colin, I believe you've got a bit of a history with this game. Yes, quite a lot, actually. Right, I'll put my hands up. I'm a complete iWar fanboy. When this game came out in, I think it was 97, I just completely ignored it until it suddenly sprung out in the bargain bin. And then I was playing it constant because the main thing about this thing is that it was so different to everything else available at the time. Its flight model was different and it just blew me away. And I'm scared that the rose-tinted glasses is going to get completely smashed again. <laughs> When I was doing my research for this one, I did say that it was one of the first games to actually incorporate Newtonian physics into the actual flight model. Obviously, Free Space and Wing Commander, that it was much more arcadey, whereas this, you actually had the feeling of inertia uh, surrounding the spaceship. Now, can you remember that being the case when you played it? Oh, God, yes. This game, you are flying a 200-meter-long warship. It's not a fighter, and that means that inertia really does come into play. Unlike some of the other games that we played, you know, Wing Commander and some of the Star Wars game, in this one you actually form the commander of a ship as opposed to you know just the person in a cockpit. How do you remember that feeling? You know, before we play the game now, does it feel massively different, or you know, do you still have that sort of commander in a cockpit kind of feel about it? No, it does feel very different. Um, the main thing that I would say that this is more like a serious flight sim, or uh, you know the submarine simulators like. Uh, silent service and things like that. It's a cross yeah. between a flight sim and one of those. Okay, has anybody else played the game? No. Seriously? I thought, Simon, I thought you had. I think I did play the game, but it was one of those, I put it on, I had a quick go of it, and then I took it off. I remember <laughs> absolutely nothing about the game. I might have played it for maybe a couple of hours, if that. I do have the game on original. I don't remember playing it very much at all. Okay, so we've got one uh, ringing recommendation and another person who played it for a couple of hours and then turned it off. Well, on the basis of that, let's boot up the game. Lieutenant, you will have realised by now the value the Commonwealth places on the fleet. Okay, so we've uh, selected our commander name and we're, on the, we're now in the mission choice, uh, which is crikey. Very, very green. Got a, a big green wall of text in front of us where we've got play mission, retake course, restart, delete history. Mission choice is just two basic options, salvage or navigation basic. So we're going to go for salvage. This is Hayes. We have arrived at the drop-off zone. The debris field is dead ahead. We will hold position here until you come back. That's if you come back. Over. It's funny how when it gets to the end of a briefing, I get that alarming feeling of, I should have paid attention. Okay, I'm now in a ship with engine noise and I don't know what I'm doing. Okay, so what do I do now then? I've got like a yellow thing. Oh, oh I've got a movie. Yeah, the, the yellow thing will disappear and you'll get a movie. Yeah. Oh, we've been to undock already. Oh, blimey. Yeah, press you. Well, when the, well, when the yeah. button press to get another cutscene. <laughs> It's really nice the way that the controls feel. I was going um, in the wrong direction there and you had to then use your full thruster to be able to correct your course. How, Quite nice. How do I undock? Press you. you. Do I get a cutscene for crashing into it? Because I think I just did. I, um, I just mission failed. Oh, nice one. Did you crash into it? No. I, I don't know what I did wrong. <laughs> This is Haas. We need to undock the ship from the flatbed. 
What do so, these numbers okay. mean? How... Anything? Yeah, normally they do. Um, number in the top right-hand corner is the number of uh, kilometers that's away from you. Okay. Oh god, on emergency power, 13 seconds left. <laughs> oh crap. Yeah, I'm dead. What have I done? There's a person floating in space! Oh wait, wait that's me. <laughs> Oops, I flew into the flatbed and died. Oh dear. You're <laughs> I give up. <laughs> I'm still flying away, but I have no targets left anymore. I've gone so far away. I'm now travelling at 15,000. <laughs> what the I hell are you, you to, doing? You have to quit out of it and do it again. Oh, God. Perfect. Oh, I'm not. I refuse. This is me, this is me sort of like saying, no way. Okay. Um, Simon, you want to sit the next one out just while we do another mission? I reckon we've yeah, got one more, one yeah, more mission too. left in this before we do a debrief uh, on it. Yep, that's fine. <laughs> I am now going to delete this game from my hard drive. Oh, what the one thing? And you never even read the manual. Oh, jeez. <laughs> I think the game should delete him. Happy <laughs> garbage hunting, guys. Okay, and we're back. So we've been playing the game now for the best part of two and a half hours. And I think the, well, first of all, from my point of view, the overall impressions I got from that game was bloody hell, there's a game that you need to read the manual for. Crikey. I mean, in fairness, it did come with quite a thick manual and it is far more of a sort of simulation game than the sort of the arcade games that we've been playing up till now. But there is a lot of keyboard, uh, there's a lot of keyboard action. There's a lot of button presses that you need to try and uh, get your head around and interesting though um very very different to what we've already been playing i'd say much more simulator as opposed to sort of arcade fighter okay we'll start with colin how are those rose tinted spectacles of yours actually mine are fine (laughs) (laughs) i don't think everybody else's are Uh, that was perfectly fine for me you do have to remember that this is the a game that i practically know backwards so every single keystroke every single um problem that everybody else was having I've gone past that stage because as far as this game's concerned you need to spend about five to six hours learning how to fly the ship because it is that complicated nobody ever went anywhere near the engineering screen because we didn't have to because we never got hit but then you see the engineering screen you realize that they've actually modeled a spaceship so that they've got all these interconnecting systems and if something goes down at one point, another thing goes down. It's the complexity is it on worst enemy. Okay, Ben? Just wondering then, with the engineering screen, you know how when we got splattered by mines or something like that, is that a way that you can fix it saying you're going to die in 10 seconds or something like that? Yes. Yeah. Ah, okay. So that's what that's all about. Yeah, so basically you've got four repair teams which you can assign to repair systems or give a higher priority to other systems. So if you've just been jumped by a whole load of indies and they've knocked out a lot of your systems, you can put the priority on getting your missiles back online first so you can start retaliating instead of trying to get the the yaw thrusters working because you're not going to need them because the missiles are self-homing. Interesting. Like I said, there's a whole lot of complexity to the game that we just couldn't touch and um, I think everybody discovered that the first couple of hours is are very, very painful as you work out what the heck you're supposed to be doing. 
Yeah, I think it was also, we were hampered slightly with this one, just the practicalities. Even though I think most of us got the game from good old games, this is actually one that didn't particularly port across worlds. A lot of people were finding that they were launching straight off into space and the thruster settings were automatically reversed. So the moment you left your docking ship, you actually reversed and crashed straight back into it. So that was a little bit frustrating. We probably wasted about 45 minutes just trying to get everything up and running on that one. So I think probably for future episodes, we'll just make sure things work straight out of the box before we start recording. But that frustration aside, it was a very, very complex game. You're absolutely right, Colin. The fact that you know the game backwards was a godsend because... I'm not entirely sure what sort of an episode we would have here if you weren't around basically being our sort of driving school instructor because there was a lot to try and get your head around and I could see how that would be a very immersive game if you were prepared to really sort of throw yourself into it. Rory? I completely agree with you there, Fozzer, because if I was playing this game as a a teenager, I would have been, when it was released, I would have loved it. I'm sure I would have sunk hours into that game because I love games of that complexity. I like simulators on the whole anyway. So I would have sunk days into that game and I would have really enjoyed it, I think. Um, I'm a different gamer now. I, I want to just drop into a game and be able to play it. So as a grown-up, I found it a little frustrating. I think it might be because I just can't absorb enough information as well as I did when I was 15, 16, 17. As a teenager, I'd have loved that game. Yeah, I'm not sure that's actually doing yourself justice there. I think... What you'll probably find is actually you're being trained by modern games that uh, you expect to have quite a straightforward tutorial. You expect a modern game to sort of walk you through, explain where all the controls are and everything you basically need to do to go solo. This was much more about expecting that you had your key reference card that you can print out and put next to your keyboard. They gave you a manual. They just expected to have a, a good background on the mechanics of it. Colin? Yeah, just to come back on that point, I think we did select the wrong missions, thinking back to it. That might have been my fault, because these kind of tutorials are actually in the game, but they're under the uh, the training missions, such as Nav Basic and Nav Advanced. And those missions have to be passed really before you get an understanding of how the ship works. And then once that's under your belt, then everything else seems to slot into place. Rory? Yeah, I just agree with the point you just made there, Fozzer, actually, because it's almost as if games have been dumbed down nowadays. Does that make sense? For example, if they expect you to read 150 pages of manual and expect you to have an understanding before you start playing the game, is that us being a bit dumber or is it modern games having a better way of doing it? I'm not sure which it is. It's probably not a valid point at all. Well, no, it's a, it is a valid point. As we said, the, the design of games has changed to the point where you're much more structured and uh, they do take you by the hand a bit. Simon, what do you think? Well, I didn't enjoy it at all, but to be really honest with the game, it's probably not the game's fault. It's probably the way the modern games are structured these days. Even Free Space you know, and games early to that had a simple selection of getting you into the ship, here's what you do, do a few simple things, you don't have to learn all the controls all at once. You can bring them in with the cut sequences, you know. How hard would it be to put just under the cut sequence, press Q and it will do this, press A and it'll do this kind of thing. And I just thought, like you say, if we didn't have Colin, none of us would have really got past the first mission. It was such a difficult system. And even games that had manuals, even ones you did really have to win, even the original Elite where you had to read the manual, you could still figure out most of the buttons for yourself fairly quickly. And with this one, you were literally left in a cockpit seat with so many different things doing all the different things all the time. And trying to find a happy medium with that game, 
personally, I found horrendous. <laughs> okay. Ben? What you're saying about the complexity in the 100-page manuals and things like that, I've recently been playing a little bit of uh, DCS's A10 flight simulator. And just to even get the A10 started up, I wound up having to watch a YouTube manual because they had a built-in press this and do this and do this and do this. I was trying to follow that through and I just thought, well, what the heck are you saying? You're saying press this button. I can't even see the bloody thing. And I wound up just needing to actually follow this 10, 20 minute YouTube manual just to go for the entire pre-flight of the game. Okay, well, what about the graphics? What about the interface? It was sort of a combination between quite sort of arcade style graphics mixed in with you know, wireframe modeling and some sort of wireframe uh, trails left behind the ship to allow you to actually follow on and see where the trajectory of the ship that you were following was. James? Well, the waypoints were quite bad. In the first mission we played, Salvage, there was a big debris field in front of us, and all the different pieces of debris all had their own waypoints. And they just completely cluttered up the screen. You couldn't see what was going on at all. And I thought that was quite bad. In terms of graphics, in terms of textures and models, they were reasonable, I guess, for the time. I'm not sure they're going to stand the test of time very well, though. I think people are going to be wanting more if people are going to be going back to that sort of thing. Yeah, I can understand where you're coming from there. It was quite a cutscene-heavy game. I mean, let's take an example. Halfway through a mission, if you were supposed to form up with one of your wingmen, you know, as soon as you got close enough to hit the auto dock and leave it to your autopilot, it would automatically sort of spring into a cutscene. At the end of every mission, it would spring to a cutscene. At the beginning of every mission, even when you were sort of launching, you'd have a cutscene. It did seem to go from cutscene, a little bit of interaction, a little bit of simulation, to the next cutscene, which, to be honest, the graphics and the cutscenes... Okay, they look a little bit dated now. They're still running in, I think, probably about 640 in terms of resolution. But I thought the animation and the actual graphics on those held up quite nicely, and it did add an extra level of immersion to the game. What did you guys think? Grant? I spent an awful lot of time off-mission, which gave me a a really unique point of view of seeing the graphics that you wouldn't normally see if you were doing what you were meant to be doing. That was a very nice way of saying that you didn't have a clear what you were doing. You were just wandering aimlessly around the actual mission setup, weren't you? Well, yeah, rather than rendezvousing, I followed the wrong ship and it went on its business and I followed it, which actually demonstrates that it had a very good AI in there because I hadn't got a clue I was following the wrong ship until you guys are all knee-deep in battles. And I'm thinking, well, I'm just at the station. And the graphics were nice. It was quite pretty. I quite like the retro-style HUD interface with the vector-esque lines. I thought that was quite a nice feel. That's kind of like how, you know, when this game came out, what the kind of modern-day head-up display in your aircraft were. I'm I'm thinking back to the games like Falcon 4.0, where you would have these vector lines coming off, showing you the movement direction of an incoming aircraft and all that. So, to me, it didn't stand out too much at all. I quite liked that. I'm not sure how you could do it differently, actually. Because it did give you that feel of movement that maybe might not have been apparent. Okay, Simon? Yeah, well, I had a huge problem with targeting things in the game. And there was no step radar system like you have in Elite to tell you where your targets are located. But saying that inside the ship, I absolutely loved the graphics. I thought they were actually 
really nice. All right, they look a bit dated now, but take that away, and you had a chip where you could look left and right. You could actually see people working on the engineering comm. You could see people working on, I think it was the weapons communication thing. I don't know whether they were just doing a set routine or not, but they were pressing buttons, and it all looked very immersive that way around as far as graphics go, and I quite like that system. Yeah, no, absolutely. And that's something we haven't really touched on, the fact that, you know, you did get the idea that you were certainly a captain on a bridge, and you know, if you looked around the bridge, there was definitely people at work trying to keep the ship going. And you're right, it did add to the level of immersion within the game. Colin? Well, as far as I was concerned, obviously the, the graphics have dated, but I still think that the actual ship designs themselves pretty well hold up. I don't see the design of the ships being sort of as dated as, say, old ships from Flash Gordon, Okay, Rory. Yeah, Colin, I think the Dreadnought reminded me a bit of the Defiant from DS9. Had a sort yep. of similar look to that, I thought, which, well, that's 15 years ago now, I suppose, isn't it? But, Grant, what you were saying about the vectors on the um, displays, I, I completely agree, because if you're in space and you haven't got anything near you, you've got no idea if you're moving or not, because you haven't got a road passing underneath you, have you? Or, or scenery going past in the window. You, you've got nothing, unless you're very close to something. And, and I think you have to have some kind of artificial display that tells you that you're moving. And I thought the way it did it on there with those red lines was actually quite good. Maybe a fewer red lines because there was a lot of them. You only need several. I thought that was very good. I think the only real thing that graphics-wise that lets the game down was the actual display in the cockpit was very cluttered. And then you're left with not a huge actual view of outside. I thought the actual cockpit was a bit cluttered. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that, um, Rory. I think the interface within the actual the head-up display, there was a lot of stuff going on there. There was a lot of buttons, a lot of sort of peripheral stuff, and you know, at times very little sort of view screen. We saw it again on Privateer, you know, where you had quite a lot of interface and very little sort of screen. I thought what came across quite nicely in the graphics, as you were saying about the red lines sort of blurring, almost as if you were sort of doing a sort of hyperspace type of manoeuvre, with this game having Newtonian physics, I thought the way that they, you know, they did the slipstreaming or the almost like the, the strafing maneuver, the, the lateral controls, and you're actually sort of flying past something, and the fact that you can turn and watch it just disappear off behind you whilst you're still going forward uh, with your inertia, I thought it looked really, really nice. I thought that came across really, really well. James, I was just going to pick up from what Rory said about having the red lines on your sort of retro HUD thing. What a lot of games have done, what things like Wing Commander have done, is instead of having things like that, they just have sort of dust or debris or something sort of going past your screen just to give you your sense of movement. I'm not sure I like that heads-up display type thing. Colin? Well, actually, the red lines, that was actually a secondary indicator to how fast you were going. If you were under 1,000 kilometres a second, it was supposed to be blue lines. If it was over 1,000, it was supposed to be red. And if you went to LDS, it turned green. It was supposed to be a kind of secondary indicator of uh, how fast you're going and, and also what direction you're going. I take it that would have been in the manual had any of us read it. Afraid so. Okay, not a problem. Rory? Um, yeah, just what James was saying, I think in space... You're going to have to have some kind of artificial display showing you that because there isn't going to be enough dust. There isn't, there's not going to be enough out there to give you the impression you're moving. And if there was, like you're saying, Wing Commander, if there was that much dust out there, your, your ship would be full of holes within 30 seconds. 
I think it, it's all down to personal taste, obviously, isn't it? But um, I think some sort of display showing you that you're moving would be far more realistic. Yeah, no, I'm inclined to agree with you. But again, it's a slightly different game, isn't it? The the Wing Commanders are they're very much based in the sort of the arcade aspect of it, where this was far more towards the simulation side of things. Okay, well, moving on to the sound of music quickly. I know we had numerous problems with the sound coming over our headsets just a little bit too loudly in combination with Skype. But what did people make the sound effects of yeah, the in-game music? Throw this one straight over to James. It would have been nice to have some controls to be able to alter the volume of the music and the speech. I think the only audio setting that was actually there was having radio chatter. And I kept that disabled throughout the entire thing. It sounded like it was the kind of thing where you just had sort of constant radio chatter rather than just the important transmissions. And I'm not sure I like that, but I think Grant said he liked that. Just being able to change the volume of it would be quite nice. The quality was quite good, although I did pick up on I think it was the second mission we played when we were departing from the space dock. The guy doing the voice acting sounded quite bored. <laughs> um, Almost like he was phoning in his performance, you mean? Yeah, he didn't sound like he was quite into it. So, maybe some slightly higher calibre voice actors would have been good. Yeah, no, I must admit, I didn't actually pick up on any of it. I didn't really pick up on any of the sounds of the pew-pews and the lasers or the missiles. I didn't really pick up on any music sounds, and I didn't really pick up on any sort of background sounds when you engaged your engines and stuff. Now, I don't know if that's because they blended in so beautifully that I was just taken away with it, or the fact that they were sort of almost non-existent, really. So I've got very little to say on the music and sound effects. Colin? Well, being probably the only person that seems to have enjoyed this, I did notice all the sounds. You know, when you've played a game and you've really enjoyed it, and when you come back to it, you get this big nostalgia feeling when you, you start hearing all these old familiar bings and, and zaps and, and all the, on the sound effects. That, I mean, that, that came back for me, especially when I was actually letting loose with the cannons, because it did have a good chunky sound to when you actually shot. And the sound when you're going into LDS, it just worked for me. And again, I suppose I'm kind of biased. No, no, not at all. I say, well, you're talking to people that have played it for a couple of hours. You've obviously put a lot more time into it, so I'm not surprised. I mean, now that you mention it, the LDS thing where you're actually sort of, <laughs> for want of a better expression, kick into hyperdrive, that did have a, a very nice sort of powering up of your engine sound. I, I do recall that now that you mention it. Okay, Ben? I think the game sounds were very serviceable, actually. Yes, they maybe didn't jump out and slap you around the face with a wet kipper, but they, they did work and they were there. I think the thing that I noticed the most was when I approached the oh the something burger in the second mission, and just that weird sound coming over my radio message just made me think, what on earth is going on here? I found it was quite atmospheric, and I I found that the the radio chatter going back and forth added a lot of immersion into the game. Dreadnought, the transport is in a bad state. External comms are down. I suggest you dock with the ship. Yeah, I didn't think that about that sound at all. That sounded like they'd run out of sound effects and put an electric fan up to a microphone. Especially with the fact that you couldn't change the volume, it just made that bit a bit horrible, actually. That was the low point of the sound. I think for me it was the weirdness of that that sold it to me, even though it was kind of lame, I suppose. Well, it was just weird. 
it was weird, but it didn't really sound like anything. It just sounded like a weird noise. Okay, Rory, what's your cinema? I think I've said it in past episodes, but a test for me as to whether the sound was good is whether I noticed it, and I didn't really notice the sound, and I think that's because it was good enough. I generally would notice it if I thought to myself, oh, that's rubbish. It obviously fitted with the game and was therefore passable. Yeah, no, I think that's valid, actually. Uh, and probably what I was trying to get at in terms of the fact I just didn't notice it. Leaving the sound there, we'll go on to the story elements. Now, this one has to win some sort of Oscar or some sort of award from the RetroLave team because their intro was a whopping 14 minutes long, which, I mean, let's be fair, it did set the scene exceptionally well. You did understand exactly what was going on in terms of the political landscape. And these indies, this group of insurgents, were taking all these ships away from the Imperial Navy and doing these hit-and-run campaigns. I thought it worked exceptionally well in terms of sort of scene-setting for you and also giving you some idea of what it was like to be a commander on the bridge of one of these classes of ships. But, Colin, what else can you tell us about the story? Does it expand? Does it become a sort of a roller coaster of plot as the game goes on? It does, actually. There's about 40 missions up to a certain point, about 30 missions in, everything seems pretty straightforward. You know what you've got to do. And then there is the decisions that you've got to make. And you make them in-game. You don't have a selection on a screen, say, choose option one, choose option two. It works on how you behave in the game, which is really nicely done when you get to it. The problem is that for the first couple of missions, they do have a lot of these cutscenes in the game, which does break the immersion. Once you've got past those first couple of missions, then it moves a lot more smoothly. You don't get cutscenes every other 5, 15 minutes or whatever that we had to deal with. And that, of course, doesn't break immersion. And did you go on to play the expansion pack, the Defiance expansion pack? Yes, I did. And uh, does that continue where the story left off? Or? No, no, no. The Defiance expansion pack is exactly the same story, but told from the Indies point of view. Ah, Interesting. You, you take control of uh, basically the Spartacus, which was formerly the dreadnought called the Rome, and basically you have to, to fight the oppressive Commonwealth. It's a heck of a lot harder. Interesting. Okay, well, maybe we can have a look at that in a future episode then. Okay, so in terms of its relationship to the game that we all love, which is Elite, what do people think? Are there any obvious influences in the game? Is there anything that it does particularly well that maybe Elite Dangerous could look at borrowing from? Or is there anything that we definitely don't want to see in the Elite Dangerous game? Uh, Rory, I'll start with you, mate. The thing that this really highlights with us, and I think the last couple of weeks, episodes-wise, is we're going to be very lucky when Elite Dangerous is actually released because I think most of us are going to have either Alpha or Beta access. So we're going to have a head start in literally flying ships around when it's released. But how are Frontier going to introduce the game to new people and how are they going to get them to learn to fly ships? And Because if they can't do it quickly, then people are just going to not bother. It's so important to get somebody playing and enjoying it straight away. Otherwise, they'll just play it for two hours and walk off exactly like Simon did with Iwar. So I'll be interested to see how Frontier are going to introduce Elite and what kind of tutorial it's going to have, because it's going to need one, because it's going to be complex. Yeah, maybe it's something we'll talk on in other shows, maybe something like the Conclave as to what people would actually like or what people would envisage that Elite Dangerous tutorial looking like. James? After doing the simulation gameplay with all the Newtonian physics... I'm quite glad that Frontier have decided to go for fly-by-wire. I didn't really enjoy the uh, sort of sliding and gliding that happened in that. 
the retros on the HUDs, wasn't really a fan of those, but thankfully, again, Frontier have already shown us what the HUD is likely to look like, and I think that's quite an improvement on this game. And I didn't like the whole switching around of stations. It was quite interesting point of the gameplay, but I'm not sure that it worked very well. Because you could do most things from the captain's chair. Some things you could do better in other chairs, and I just don't think it seemed to work very well, so... I think that's my view. Okay, Colin. Yeah, it goes back to the the same point that we had in Privateer, really. And I think Rory's already made this point, is that the first half hour stroke hour is going to have to be fun and teach you how to fly the ship at the same time. I don't think people these days have the patience to go through a whole 150-page manual to work out how to fly your Cobra. The thing that I would take from this game, actually, is the fast travel system. The LDS, which you move from one point to another. I really like that. In later missions, you come across with these things called LDSI missiles, which interrupt you. So if you're a pirate and you wanted to stop a ship which was fast traveling, you'd fire off one of these LDSI missiles. It would stop them in their tracks, and then you could intercept them and perform your piracy. Interesting. You could see how that would work quite nicely with the system that they're trying to put into Elite Dangerous. Yeah, but I also know it works because that's exactly what you do in iWar 2. <laughs> <laughs> okay, has anybody got anything else that they either loved or didn't like about this game that they'd like to see in Lily Dangerous? Simon? Yeah, I mean, what I liked about the game was the fact you could lock down the ship and see all the members of the crew and everything like that. It would be nice if you could get the ship that you could be able to get in Frontier, especially in, in First Encounters, where you had crew members. If you could just say that the bigger cockpit or crew area or whatever you want to call it, that you could actually look around and see that crew member working, that'd be a nice touch, I think. But other than that, if Elite actually put anything in that game for me, it's a big no-no. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm not expecting high things from your score at the end of this episode, if I'm honest, Simon. Uh, ben? I was going to say very much similar to what Simon was saying. I like the multiple people crewing my ship. And I think when you're flying some of the largest ships, this isn't some little snug fighter that we're flying around. This is, even the Millennium Falcon has two people flying it. And then you've got your gunners as well. And the idea of having a crew on board your ship whose body you somehow jump into, it seems to make sense for when you're flying one of these larger vessels. I don't see how you're meant to just solo fly a great big ship. It's almost sort of lending itself more towards the role-play aspect of these games. And whilst I was playing it, the one game that I did keep on thinking in the modern world, and that is Mass Effect. And the fact that you do have such a good interface with Mass Effect about the fact that you're walking around your ship, you can go and look at the various different stations on that. And that, to me, seems much more like the natural sort of evolution of this type of game as opposed to maybe the Elite Dangerous game. But anyway, the bit that we've all been waiting for, we're going to go for the scores for this particular episode. We'll start off with Mr. Rose Tinted Spectacles himself, Colin. I'm going to actually hold my Rose Tinted Spectacles up quite proudly. I thoroughly enjoyed what little we've played of it, but I'm still going to stick with a score of seven. Okay, seven, good score. Uh, ben? I'd give it a good six, and that's basically being let down by the fact that there is no control for configuring your joystick whatsoever. You know, I've got a reasonable joystick, and the manual actually says, play this using a joystick. Yet my fire button decelerated me, my throttle tried to rotate me, my rotation stuff 
also did some work on the throttle. But if you can ignore that, then I actually quite enjoyed the game. Okay, so technicalities aside, you score it a six. Grant? I would rate that a five, I think. Maybe the plotline will come in, but I don't feel compelled to explore much further. Okay, Rory? Um, I think I'll give it a seven, because I can only judge it on what we saw tonight. And if I'd played this 15 years ago when it was out, I'd have loved it, I think, and I'd have spent a lot of time on it. I can't judge it too harshly based on how games are nowadays because I don't think that would be fair but I think for when it was made the environment that it was in in those days gaming wise I think it would have been a great game so I'm going to give that 7 Okay, James? Unfortunately I've only really got modern games to compare it to if I was just to rate it on my experience tonight I can't say I had a particularly great time playing it I think I'd have to rate it as low as a 4 If I was to take into account what I've heard from Colin about it improving later on, I would maybe up it to a five or a six. You know, if I'm the vanguard, we'll have to see how that goes. Okay, and from my perspective, yeah, I wouldn't be too upset if I was the vanguard on this one. I do think that the game's got a bit of potential, so I'm going to go for a six. And if I go for the vanguard, I think there might be some wiggle room. Now, last person left is going to be Simon, who halfway through the game actually rage quitted. He had so much fun. Simon, what's your score for this, mate? Yeah, I did rage quit. And to be really honest, I had more fun playing Privateer. And if I remember correctly, I rated Privateer a four, and that would at least double the fun for me. So this has to be a two for me. Ouch. Okay, so... Low, well, actually, no, a bit of a mixed score for that one. All that's left to do for this episode is to pick our vanguard, and we've got Colin, Simon, James, Rory, Ben, and myself. Grant, I'm taking you out of the vanguard because I think three weeks in a tachyon fringe universe, I think, is enough to keep you out of this one. And our survey says, Colin. Yay! That doesn't (laughs) seem fair. (laughs) In fairness, I'm actually going to take Colin out of the equation because... uh, it would help to have someone that wasn't quite as close to the game. So, Colin and Grant, you're out of this one. That just leaves Simon, Ben, Rory, myself, and James. And it's actually going to be Rory. Woohoo! So, so Rory, you're our vanguard for this particular episode. You've got a week to play iWars and report back to us on the next episode as to whether or not it went up or down. And just remind us, what was your score? I gave it a 7, I think. You gave it a 7, so pretty lofty scores to start with. So it'll be interesting Mm. to see if it can creep up to an 8, or actually you become so frustrated it actually drops down a few scores. Okay, well, that's going to do it for this episode. I hope you enjoyed the journey back in time. If you'd like to join the RetroLave team to play and then record, we gather on Monday nights at 8.30pm on Skype. Add lave.radio to your Skype list and follow us on Facebook and Twitter for the latest updates. Thanks very much to Colin, Simon, James, Rory, Grant and Ben. And until next time, it's game over.
No, I can't hear it. Okay, Colin, just mute yourself for a second, mate. Okay. Yeah, it's Colin. Yeah, it's Colin. <laughs> Colin. <laughs> oh, hang on. Don't tell me. Oh, hang on a second. Ali, have you put the washing machine on? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, please tell me someone recorded that. <laughs> and I'm I'm wondering if that's um Well no I'm not I'm not actually wondering anything, just cut that bit. <laughs> okay, Colin. Being an idiot again, sorry. Sort of arcade fighter arcade fighter. Okay, fine. So that wasn't me farting, by the way. That was me pulling a paper out from beneath my keyboard. Where we can choose either the, the navigation basic tutorial or the salvage tutorial. Whoever's just been breathing in the microphone, they're the ones that need to actually pull the microphone back from the mouth. Can I cough now? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was holding that back. <laughs> well, we're going to get all our bodily functions out of the way. Hold on a second. Say. No. Hang on. <laughs> Leave that kitten alone. <laughs> Microphones away from your mouth. Thank you. And away from any hamsters. I'm not sure I'm actually doing anything. What are you doing at the moment then, Grant? I'm following this ship around, but absolutely nothing is happening. We're is just t- flying is- around in circles. It's quite nice, oh. but... Is that the press burger? I'm sure it's the right ship. <laughs> Shit. Press P. Of course it's press P. Oh dear, I think Grant's just died in it. <laughs> no. <laughs> I've not done the first objective yet. <laughs> <laughs> I've been following the wrong ship for the last 20 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> That's why nothing's happened. I just didn't follow this guy and it really crashed. I don't even know how to find him. <laughs> I think, Grant, you've lost this mission. Uh, hold on. You put yourself out of the misery. 